0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, three of the five conservative candidates showed up for last night's leaders debate. What were the key takeaways? We'll get into that. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science with Carleton University, will join us to discuss why Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit has angered China. And the Ford government is calling on the feds to help fix the hospital staffing crisis here in Ontario. But what is he doing provincially? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Another debate last night, uh, the Conservative leadership debate. Of course, they're only a couple of weeks away from determining who the new leader of the party is going to be. And three out of the five uh, Conservative leadership candidates met yesterday for their final pitch in Ottawa. Uh, Stephanie Taylor has details.
1: Jean Charest took repeated aim at the candidates who skipped the debate, focusing mostly on his main rival, Pierre Paulyep. The ex-Quebec Premier says unity is badly needed in the party, and for that to happen, candidates first have to show up. But Charest was pressed to say what he will do after the race is over September 10th. Scott Aitchison, an MP from Ontario, says no matter what happens, he will be there to help Conservatives try and defeat the Liberal government. He asked Charest, who has been out of federal politics for decades, whether he can say the same. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa.
0: Uh, kind of a low key affair, but uh, is it going to have any impact at all uh, as as the voting uh, begins? Of course, for the uh, leadership of the new Conservative Party and the new leader, uh, joining us to talk about this, and I want to uh, get into the China issue too. If I could in a couple of seconds, is Wayne Petrosi? Wayne, of course, is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Did you? Uh, I, I tried to find out what was going on. I mean, the, the debate last night seemed to me to be pretty low key. It looked more like a, a meeting of three guys at a Tim Hortons, uh, just talking about a, a couple of issues. Uh, it was not really must see TV. But is it going to make any difference at all in this race, Wayne?
2: Well, I mean, you're right. It was a low key affair, and the uh, the topics that they covered last night were pretty uh, what you would expect, especially in, in a conservative leadership race. The usual. Issues around inflation, uh, the rural economy, uh, so that was the topics weren't a surprise, and the responses from each of the the three candidates present weren't weren't a surprise either.
0: So, with that in mind, and, and the fact that uh, the front runner, the perceived front runner, anyway, Pierre Paul, have, uh skipped the debate. So did listen Lewis. Uh, and, and his comment was, he said he was in Saskatchewan, apparently, he says, I'd rather be with you people than stuck in a hotel room talking about uh, a failed liberal leader, I guess referred to Jean Charest, uh, which brings up the topic, I guess, Wayne, of, of party unity. Uh, it's been a rather divisive leadership race uh, with Paul Yev and uh, Charest particularly, uh, but the other ones getting involved in this, throwing barbs at each other too. Uh, can they make up and, and be friends and, and, you know, do the group hug when this is all over? Or is there some, some deep rifts here that's going to, you know, be a major problem for these guys going forward?
2: I, I suspect that at least uh, going forward, the the insurgent group representing Polyev, I think is in command of the party. Uh, I, I don't think there will be um, a lot of uh, dissidents coming from, more mainstream brand, sections of the party. Some individuals may quietly go to the sidelines, but I think really right now the Conservative Party is in the hands of uh, Poliev's uh, supporters.
0: Is that a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to the next federal election, whenever that might be?
2: You know, that, that certainly, uh, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, and But I think what it indicates is if if that holds to form, politics in in this country will get nastier. Uh, We'll have more and more of these crazy debates about what's real and what's not, what's true and what's not, and, and, you know, which only uh, depresses people who aren't in politics for a living and will coarsen uh, the debate at the same time.
0: And, and that's interesting, what the impact it's going to have on voters. A great, a great perspective on that, Wayne. I, I'm getting the sense, I know that there are some people that simply gravitate to that sort of thing. You know, they may have a dislike, for instance, for Justin Trudeau, and anybody that wants to take shots at him, well, that's, that's, our, that's our candidate. But I'm hearing more and more, anecdotally anyway, from a lot of people that say, we're just turned off politics by all this stuff. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I, I think that's, that is exactly what happens uh, when... You, the activists, uh, become more and more extreme. Uh, they certainly fill up the screen with with their presence, but they do so by driving out people who just want to talk about the issues and and government proposals to deal with them and whether one proposal is better than another. Instead, what they get is a steady diet of of innuendo and slanders directed at your opponent. Your opponents all of a sudden become almost uh, uh, existentially evil who, who have to be uh, expunged from the political landscape. It, it, and for most people, that, that, isn't why, that isn't what they think politics should be about, and they're right about that. And if it is going to be about that, they're going to kind of stay clear.
0: We saw that in the last federal election, didn't we? It was a, a relatively low voter turnout, uh, which indicated to me anyway that an awful lot of people just really didn't give, you know, in other words, a pox on all their houses.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it, 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 it's about that. And it's just uh, th- there's a fatigue that settles in on, on, on the broader public from this constant, uh, you know, barrage of messaging uh, across all social media platforms. And if you really have a stomach for it, uh, the cable news system, uh, e- ecosystem, <laughs> it, it can really, uh, after a while, you think, oh, my God, isn't there anything else in the world happening besides this? And so, yes, it does have that effect.
0: Yet uh, the other side of this, uh, the Conservatives are, are touting this as as a rejuvenation of their party after a couple of rather uh, disappointing election losses, of course, uh, to with uh, Andrew Shearer and, and most recently, of course, with Aaron O'Toole. Uh, and and to validate that, they talk about the number of of new members that have been signed up, uh, six hundred and seventy thousand names, they say. Uh, which says, they says, anyway, uh, this is a rejuvenated party, this is a party that's excited, and and, and what this race has done is actually uh, put life into into Canadian politics. Uh, as you and I have been covering these things for an awfully long time, and the fact that somebody buys a membership doesn't necessarily mean they're even going to vote in this leadership. I'm sure many of them will. Uh, but do you get the sense that the, the party feels as if this, this is a, a turning point for them? Uh-
2: I THINK THAT IS CERTAINLY THE CASE with, with, WITH THE ACTIVIST BASE. THEY THINK IT IS A TURNING POINT. Uh, THEY WERE NEVER HAPPY WITH THE MARRIAGE BETWEEN the, THE CONSERVATIVE PARTY AND REFORM. THEY ALWAYS FELT THAT THE CONSERVATIVE PARTY WING OF THE PARTY, IF YOU WILL, uh, disproportionately INFLUENCED the, the, THE NEW CONSERVATIVE PARTY, AND THEY ARE IN THE MIDST NOW of pushing out the remnants of the Conservative wing and putting fully in place the reform uh, crowd within the Conservative Party. It's going to be a reform party called Conservative Party of Canada.
0: Which is what a lot of people thought when they did uh, that, that rather unholy marriage, I guess, years ago with uh, you know Peter McKay and Stephen Harper. And, and a lot of people were angry about that. And I guess those wounds haven't really healed yet, have they?
2: They haven't healed and, and what's changed though, is, is that at, at the time of the marriage, uh, many of the differences were were polit- were policy in, in nature. And, and, and that's reasonable. Uh, but what's happened since then is that the the, the political culture and the political climate of the country has changed rather dramatically. And now uh, we see that uh, party activists, now define their activism in terms of just how strident they can be, how fulsome they can be in their denunciation of any who would dare stand against them. So we we, we have a much less uh, inviting political uh, environment in which to participate. As I said, people who have been driven out of, of that uh, environment and replaced for the most part by uh, activists who aren't Interested in anything except their way or the highway.
0: Uh, yeah, so much for the big tent, I guess. I mean, the the mantra now seems to be uh, you you're free to think anything you want as long as it's the same way I think. Uh, and if not, they don't seem to watch on on the team. And that that's a, a difference from from what we've seen in past generations politically, anyway.
2: It is, and that that's why you see Charest trying to make the case for the big tent. But I think uh, he's speaking to a, a, an audience that, by and large isn't interested in that uh, approach, and uh, things that that approach in the past was a dead end.
0: So the Jean Charest, the Peter McKay's, uh, the people of that ilk, uh, the uh, the from the old Conservative Party, uh, as far as most of these people, I guess, concerned, Wayne, they're, they're yesterday's news.
2: They're yesterday's news, and uh, they're probably advised to quietly withdraw from the stage and because they they're they're not going to stop this
0: interestingly see i'm not going to ask you to predict a winner for the race i think we've got time in the next couple of weeks to do that And like you say you don't have your crystal ball uh handy today i do want to well i've got you here though i want to get you read if i could about uh the story we covered yesterday about uh, canada's indo-pacific strategy uh there's a lot of concern and you and i've had those discussions in the past about uh, what's going on with china in uh, in this in the Indo Pacific region right now, and they're they're well they're flexing their muscles essentially. Uh, the government has been formulating their own Indo Pacific strategy. We've told uh, a, a leaked document from uh, from Ottawa the other day suggested that in the first draft they didn't even mention China. Uh, and apparently a lot of our allies right now are saying, Canada, you got to get your act together here and open your eyes to what's going on. Uh, how much pressure? I know Melanie Jolie, the Foreign Affairs Minister. Uh, was was talking about this the other day, uh, but it's getting to the point right now where I'm getting the sense from the, the material I'm seeing here, Wayne, that our allies are getting pretty frustrated with Canada's inaction in this situation.
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think what our allies and and some of our uh, uh, some of other members of the political class have to keep in mind, yeah, you know, we are a, at best a middle power. And truth is, when you look at the big picture for us as a country strategically, we have at least two other significant priorities that I think supersede anything in the Indo-Pacific region. One, we have the far north. That is a, a fundamental importance to us defensively, strategically. And two related to that, of course, is our expanded commitments with NATO. Now, I know there's a partial overlap there, especially with some of the Nordic NATO members. But between uh, air defense, surveillance, uh, maintaining sovereignty in, in Arctic waters, and then our commitment to NATO, I, I wouldn't be surprised that a, a government says, listen, those have got to be priorities one and two in terms of our overall strategic uh, view of the world, and three, Sadly to say, as import, as, as terrible as, as some of the things China may be doing, the Indo-Pacific region is, is really not in our backyard. Uh, these other two are in our backyard. And one can understand Australia, for example, another middle power. China is their yard. They have no choice but to mm-hmm. align with whomever they can align with. IN ORDER TO uh, DEVELOP A STRATEGY THEY THINK THAT CAN MAINTAIN re- PEACEFUL RELATIONS IN THAT REGION. SO I THINK, YOU KNOW, IT'S it's PROBABLY, IT'S A BIT MUCH TO EXPECT A RELATIVELY MIDDLE POWER LIKE CANADA TO HAVE VERY PROMINENT uh, INITIATIVES IN ALL THREE uh, AREAS SIMULTANEOUSLY.
0: So THERE WAS AN ATTEMPT, uh- by this government to try to, I guess, rebuild some of the bridges, uh, from an economic and trade perspective anyway, between Canada and China. Uh, given the fact that just about anything such as this, uh, the, the strategy that's being developed by some of these other nations, the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, China tends to look at those things as, as, as actionable. In other words, uh, it's an affront to them and to what they think is their sovereignty in this region. Uh, does Canada really want to get on that path?
2: Well, you know, I, I I think certainly by words, we will voice support for our allies in that region. Uh, I have no doubt about that. Uh, whether, how far you can push those words into significant uh, financial and strategic contributions, I think is, is, a, is a different question. Uh, I think the Canadians are likely going to go in the direction of trying to exert influence and support uh, their allies in the region uh, diplomatically via trade initiatives, uh, by voicing supports for international institutions designed to protect and enhance individual uh, human rights, et cetera. But they're not going to get into uh, some kind of military relationship uh, you know, just keep in mind the distance we're talking about here
1: mm-hmm. and, and
2: what you would be required to do and to spend in order to maintain a ongoing military presence some 5,000 miles away.
0: Exactly. Professor Wayne Petrosi, Wayne, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it.
2: Oh, you're welcome. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, uh, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues her trip to Asia and uh, continues to draw the ire of the uh, Chinese government, of course. Ties between the U.S. and uh, Eastern Asian nations are very paramount, as we were just mentioning on the program a few minutes ago. And after traveling to uh, Taiwan earlier this week and causing tension with China, Pelosi is now taking a more low-key approach as uh, she enters into South Korea. Hakun Kate Lee has some details.
3: House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met with the South Korean counterparts to reassure a strong alliance between the two countries. Our three main pillars are security, economics, and Governance. Pelosi and Seoul National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo discussed stronger cooperation to resolve problems such as regional security, economy, and climate change. A joint statement by the U.S. and South Korea addressed concerns about North Korea's growing threat and agreed to work together to achieve peace in the region. Hakkyung Kate Lee, ABC News, Seoul.
0: So, uh, as a lot of people are asking these, Jason, what what is the end game with Nancy Pelosi, and uh, and what is the U.S. government uh, doing to try to respond to some of the concerns raised by the Chinese? Uh, to talk about that and and uh, the other issue that we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, about the Indo-Pacific strategy. i uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper. Elliot is a, an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Elliot, it's always a pleasure. Uh, great to have you back on the program today. Uh,
3: thank you, Bill. Good to be with you.
0: Let me get into the Pelosi thing in a second, but we were just uh, kind of scanting over uh, the, the Indo-Pacific strategy that's being developed right now, and I know that uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie has taken some heat from some of her counterparts about Canada's lack of uh, involvement in this, and I know that they tell us that they are developing their own aspect of that policy of an Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, how important is it for Canada to roll up its sleeves and get into this thing? I mean, I, one of our allies, of course, Australia, uh, is, is pretty adamant that they want more from Canada, they want a stronger commitment from Canada on this. Is it necessary?
3: Canada is an Asian Pacific nation. Uh, this has been declared over and over again, particularly at times when the um, pull from the South of us, you know, the US is such a a magnet, a well. uh, Canada has to diversify its its trade, its economic, its security concerns. This is a longstanding refrain in Canadian foreign policy and Canadian public. We are an Asian Pacific nation, but we do not invest in it. We have a very uh, episodic interest. It comes and goes. Sometimes we're very interested, sometimes not. And now with this new Indo-Pacific strategy, it's been underway that, I don't know, I heard last April it was about to be announced. Uh, uh-huh. this, is, uh, this is showing a lacunae in Canadian foreign policy focus. We cannot maintain, apparently, remember, I'm an Asian studies specialist. This is, I've been preaching this to my classes for 30 years or whatever, more than that. Uh, we have to remember that Asia is there. It's getting organized. We're part of it. And we are not, I think, stepping up to the plate.
0: Uh, one aspect of this, and because I know you've talked about this on when you've been on the program before, uh, about, uh, I guess, a, a counter-program pro- uh, for China's Belt and Road Initiative. And for those who may not know, I, I guess the simple explanation for the China Belt and Road is, is basically they're building infrastructure in, in countries to try to curry favor uh, with the people and with the governments, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been going on for some time. And there seems now, at least from Australia and the U.S. is even talking about this, about trying to set up a similar program to try to, you know catch up and and, and try to get into that game. Uh, That's going to take a lot of money, Elliot. Is that something Canada should be involved in?
3: Well, uh, again, Canada, I've just said that we need to step up to the plate. I'd say step up to the plate more. Uh, We are a foundational member of the progressive uh, TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. We have an ambassador to ASEAN. We have embassies all around the region. It's not like we are uh, not there, but when it comes to these new initiatives, we're being bypassed by our, our closest allies. We're, we're not even invited to some of the meetings, uh, such as the one you just mentioned. Uh, yes, we have a vested interest in being part of the rising part of the geopolitics of the world, the economy of the world. The major economies increasingly are in Asia. We will always be connected to the U.S. That will always be our number one partner. But the rising uh, economies are in Asia. We need to be there and we need to find a way. I think we've tried it. We've we've tried some of this, some of that, but uh, we clearly need a more coherent approach. And the debate apparently within those who are uh, setting up the Indo-Pacific strategy, it isn't released yet, the debate is really what to do about China. Uh, do you confront it? Do you engage it? Uh, to what degree do, is this Indo-Pacific strategy about China. Is it going to be, uh, remember, they're a major economic power. Are we going to cost jobs in Canada? So I think there's probably a raging debate going on, and that's why we haven't got it yet.
0: And and the concern, I guess, always is is, the Chinese government tends to look at any of these initiatives, including an Asia-Pacific policy here, as, as antagonistic. Uh, And there's always the concern, I guess, if that's the case, Elliot, about repercussions, economic or otherwise. Uh, We're we're already not really on on a a good footing with Chinese government these days anyway, for a variety of reasons. Uh, Do we want to poke the bear even more?
3: Yes. uh, (laughs) This comes back fundamentally to what do you think about China and its role in the world. And I'm afraid I I would go the other direction on this than some of the other commentators and uh, some of the... uh, issues implied by the the way this question has been raised. China is a global power. It's going to be a global power. The question is what kind of global power and what does the rest of the world do about it? Uh, We have paid a very heavy cost for trifling with one aspect of China and that's, have we already forgotten the two Michaels? Uh, The unlawful detention, the vote in our parliament that what's going on with the Uyghurs is genocide. Uh, we have a special parliamentary committee focusing on China. We need to have a very clear picture that China is going to be a power, but the way it's manifesting that power is inimical to a lot of Canadian values and interests, and we need to deal with that.
0: Speaking of poking the bear, <laughs> uh, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi and her her Asian trip uh, she says she's not there officially representing the Biden administration. She's just there as the Speaker of the House. Uh, other speakers have done this in the past, but this is a different time and a different place. Uh, China has really uh, taken issue with uh, with Pelosi being there, uh, especially because of, of what they consider to be part of their sovereign territory in situations like this. Uh, is, is there any upside for the for the U.S. government and for Pelosi for doing all this stuff to, to really, I guess, really get it under the skin of the Chinese government?
3: Well, gives Biden a chance to talk democracy <laughs> to Xi sure. Jinping, trying to explain that uh, his uh, authoritarian system in China is not what we have uh, in North America and around the world. That democracies vary, and he can't tell the Speaker of the House not to go. So I think that was a little side issue. Uh, I think this whole issue we need to stand back just a half a step from it. The way it's being framed now is oh should this be done now because we are poking the bear, as you well put it, uh, the dragon in this case, the issue really is this is a China issue, not a Taiwan issue. Uh, the Chinese have decided that they are going to um, basically push out Western interest, American interest, and that includes us as well, uh, from the region, and they're going to transform this the um, South Asian all the, all the waters around it into a Chinese lake. It's not a Chinese lake. These are international waters. Uh, we have been an active part in the freedom of navigation rules that uh, or the exercises that the U.S. has led. I think we've sent two frigates through the Straits uh, separating Taiwan. So what we're seeing right now, I think is, and it, is China saying, you can't even think of coming to the defense of your own interests uh, because look what happens if you do we're going to take it out on taiwan this is an extremely dangerous situation that we're in the uh, if you've seen the maps uh, you know, the the there's really a blockade right now around taiwan you know i have been <laughs> i've been there if you uh, if you take a look at one end of the uh of the big island there's other islands involved but the major island uh, this uh, there's chinese activity, military activity, nine miles off from Kaohsiung. I've I've been in Kaohsiung and I've seen that area. So this is a a very dangerous escalation by China. And there's two aspects, I think, that are not getting sufficient attention. One of these, because all the attention now is on the issues you've raised, should, should she go, should she not go? So two things I'd like to emphasize. One is that China is whipping up nationalism on this. They are using the Taiwan issue, perhaps to divert attention From the uh, Xi Jinping government regimes, the Communist Party's woes, their economy is not in good shape. Uh, He's got a major uh, confirm me for life as leader coming up, and he wants to rally nationalism around him, but he is playing with fire. He's the one, I think, uh, that is unleashing forces of nationalism that can really change the equation. The second thing I think has not received nearly enough attention is this. will involve inevitably Japan. And this may be aimed at Japan. Uh, Japan is taking the lead in forming that Indo-Pacific concept that you referred to earlier. Uh, It's almost impossible to do anything by China against or around Taiwan without stepping on Japanese sovereignty one way or another. So this is, uh, I think, two aspects which have not received sufficient attention. And it is a very dangerous very dangerous situation now that China is using for its own purposes. The fact that should we be attacking Pelosi for going there? Uh, all that fits the Chinese narrative and suits them very well. Indeed, it's all the U.S. fault. It's not China's fault that they are trying to humble and and uh, uh, slap around a democratic neighbor that has the world's support uh, among the world's democracies, including us
0: and that's i 'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this because I wanted to get some clarity on this look i I understand i mean the the world right now is is focusing on what 's going on in ukraine and and I understand that totally we 'll talk about that hopefully in a second or two uh, but the, the, things are heating up in, in the South pacific here and and i don 't know that too many people are paying attention to that I mean China, as you mentioned, have already vowed retaliation because of what Pelosi's doing. Uh, and, and that's running up the temperature right now. It can't be a coincidence, Elliot, uh, that as she's uh, getting on a plane and, and heading over there, uh, that all of a sudden China has begun military exercises uh, very nearby, launching missiles. And we saw those uh, the video of those just uh, a couple of hours ago with what's going on. So they're, they're sending a message, aren't they?
3: Yes, this is a, this is truly a blockade of Taiwan in a way that hasn't happened before. The stepping up of pressure... Uh, can be seen as, well, China has to do something, so they're going to do this, then things will go back to normal. But we have to remember just how dangerous this is. Uh, these are two nuclear-armed powers, uh, the U.S. and China. And China is playing a very dangerous game in trying to close off international waters, in in uh, launching these kinds of uh, military activities around what is um, the U.S. is is pledged to see to it that uh, the, the the porcupine policy, that is, Taiwan will always have enough firepower to fend off, this is by treaty, to fend off uh, an attack. So strategic ambiguity by the US is wearing thin. Strategic ambiguity is we're not going to tell China that we will defend Taiwan, but we're also not going to tell Taiwan uh, you know, to go ahead and declare independence. There is no sign that Taiwan plans to actually formally declare independence which would trigger a war but on the other hand i think uh the idea that the emerging china needs we need to shape emerging china's behavior uh, if this is the way they want to behave as they become a global power we all have to take notice and we have to react accordingly
0: well we see the pattern here though uh, uh, with china and, and and certainly with russia too is is they will make accusations uh very little of it, of course, is factually based, but, I mean, they will do it anyway. It's almost as if they were, they're trying to justify some future action. Uh, yes. And I'll go back to the metaphor of poking the bear, and I mean the bear this time because of Russia, uh, right. because now they're directly accusing the United States uh, of being directly involved in the war in Ukraine right now. I mean, you know, the United States policy, as you and I have talked about it in the past, is simply to supply materials and arms, etc. Uh, but apparently the uh, defense minister, the Ukraine defense minister, uh, made some comments to a, a British newspaper the other day that the U.S. is actually actively engaged in intelligence gathering and planning for uh, where those attacks are going to take place. Yes. And uh, Russia says, sorry, that's that's war. Yeah, that, and again, is, is this Putin simply trying to justify uh, what he's doing over there? Or is the concern here about maybe a ramping up of, of activity?
3: Perhaps the most single important event of the last week is the trying to strengthen the non nonproliferation treaty that's going on. The UN secretary general says we are one miscalculation from obliteration, from annihilation as a species, uh, a theme that you and I have talked about before. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this is a Russian action. This is not an American action. It is Russia that invaded and unprovoked uh, a neighboring state and is trying to dismember it and is doing so in, in uh, ways that clearly are war crimes, if we could put it neutrally. The U.S. role has been to steadily escalate its engagement in a way that does not cross a line. So the particular message uh, that you just uh, talked about was coming from the Russians was, if you read it carefully, well, yes, uh, the U.S. is coordinating with uh, Ukraine, providing intelligence and and maybe satellite data, but, but not providing targeting Uh, Data So that this is where the U.S. is walking that fine line. We're not telling you which Russians to hit, where they are exactly, but we are providing you with information where you can make your own decisions. Uh, This is the kind of fine tripwire that we are all focusing on now, but in Taiwan, as well as now in in Russia. So the world is a more dangerous place because we have emergent and revanchist powers in the case of Russia that are quite willing to risk nuclear war uh, rather than find ways to emerge, as was China's slogan, uh, peaceably, uh, peaceable rise. Uh, But Xi Jinping has thrown that out and we see that Russia unexpectedly has decided to create a land war in Europe and is fully committed to it, Bill. Uh, So we are in a situation of a more dangerous world as a result.
0: You've been studying this, as you mentioned, for over 30 years, uh, and, and we've seen in those 30 years, uh, crises, uh, ebb and flow, the Cuban Missile Crisis, so many other situations right. like that. Right. How concerned are you right now with what's going on in both these areas?
3: Yeah, it's actually closer to 50 years now. the uh, I'm very concerned. Just a, a tiny incident, uh, you'll remember, Canadians might remember, that China has been behaving recklessly, even in regard to Canada. Uh, They were buzzing our jets, uh, uh, sorry, the Aurora planes. So they were um, doing, you know, (laughs) Top Gun stuff. Oh, here's our jet. And they're so close to the Aurora's this very old airplane where they could even give Canada the finger. Well, um, you know, (laughs) this is very reckless behavior. They need to stop watching Top Gun and start watching um, Dr. Strangelove. We are in a more dangerous world as a result of what's going on in Russia. And now China has decided to raise the ante again. There's perfectly normal ways to accommodate rising powers. These rising powers are not themselves behaving in a way, in a way which is going to made, mean a safer and more prosperous world for all.
0: I love the pop culture references Uh, (laughs) with both movies. Love them both. Uh, Elliot, stay well. Great to have you back in the program. We'll uh, talk again soon as these uh, two major issues uh, start to unfold even further. Uh, We'll touch base again, I'm sure, later on down the road. Uh, Take care, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. New data from a survey of Ontario nurses shows that 7 out of 10 say they are unable to provide adequate patient care. That's somewhat contrary to what Premier Doug Ford said yesterday. Almost half of those nurses say they're considering leaving the profession for good. Now, the release of the study comes as staffing shortages are taking a toll on the province's health care. Matt Carty has some details for us.
1: The survey of registered practical nurses shows 68% do not have the time or resources to properly care for patients. The data also points to moral distress being up and mental health being impacted. Diane Martin is the CEO of WERPN and she is seeing a change in how quickly nurses leave the industry. It used to be never. Uh, my mom's time when you became a nurse, you did it for life. My time even, I would say that's true. Um, but new graduates now are identifying two to three years. Martin says her own daughter left bedside nursing just this week in a critical care unit after 10 years opting for an educational role. For others considering a move as well, Martin had this message. None of us, no nurse, um, owes the healthcare system their well being. Matt Cardi, Global News.
0: So what's going on? And, uh, and yesterday was the first time, as we mentioned, that uh, the Premier Ford has actually taken questions from the media for quite some time. And uh, uh, the focus quickly shifted from uh, the announcement they wanted to make yesterday and did make, of course, about uh, what's going on with uh, free job training uh, to what's going on with the health care system. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Alan Hale. Alan, of course, is a reporter for Queen's Park Today uh, with his finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, with this government. Uh, Alan, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, this is... Uh, and, and the narrative, of course, was supposed to be a good news story yesterday with the Premier and Monty McNaughton in Stratford to make an announcement. And it was good news about the job training mm-hmm. program. Uh, but as soon as the Q&A started, uh, all of a sudden it was healthcare, And I, I got the sense as I was watching that yesterday that the, the Premier was kind of back on his heels a little bit, wasn't he?
4: Well, I think so. he, I think they knew going into this that uh, health care was going to end up dominating. Uh, the Premier sort of like... Tried to get ahead of it and say uh, before the question started, but once they did, yeah, nothing all the uh, reporters wanted to talk about is what's been going on with um, emergency rooms and uh, and ICUs across the province and honestly it's the premier didn't have much to like say uh about it It, uh it's something that uh he said basically the same sort of things that uh, sylvia jones the health minister went said yesterday and it's a it's there's not a whole lot more that he can say than other than that uh about 90 percent of people who do go to the emergency room are still getting dealt with within the target time which is eight hours um which so the system is working but we keep seeing all of these um all of these hospitals either scaling back their um the hours of their emergency rooms or like having to pull uh uh staffing from other departments to keep their ICUs running, and the the premier just yeah, he was defensive, he didn't have a lot more to say about what the province can be doing, uh, other than that they're working on it and they're gonna throw everything in the kitchen sink at it,
0: yeah, throwing everything they can at it. And it was coincidental that he said that because there's a report yesterday. Uh, from the, the, the independent agency that simply said that o- Ontario actually has the least amount of money spent on health care per person in, in this province. And uh, that's not something he referred to. Uh, I, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, and that's not unusual, is it, Alan? I mean, they've all got talking points. Every government does that. Mm-hmm. simply said, if, you know, you get asked this, this is what you say. And there's two or three points. And he seemed to be falling back on that. But the the, the points he was making were not really relevant to the questions he was being asked.
2: No,
4: I mean, I think... He did w- really want to hammer home point the hammer home the point that uh, you know nine about ninety percent of people are still getting the attention they need uh, uh, on like target for uh, when they go to the emergency room, and he also sort of wanted to make a point that this is not something that is going that is just happening in Ontario that this is not a problem that is you know just in Ontario or has been caused by his government is really I think what he was trying to get at. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> trying to, to put
0: some not distance. Not to, exactly. You know, this is this is not an an Ontario problem. It's a national problem, uh, which is cold comfort to the people that tried to go to an emergency room this past weekend and were told, "Sorry, we're shut down." Uh, you know, it's it, the art of deflection is is something that all politicians try to master. And he he seemed to be doing his best to try to do that yesterday because it it didn't take him too long, did it, Alan, to to kind of morph into well, it's all Ottawa's fault
4: well yeah he sort of uh, he you know, before the, he took questions part of his little prepared remarks about this issue was basically to point out that uh he and the other premiers in this prov- in this country have been asking for the federal government to increase the um the federal um health care uh uh transfers that they get every year um it's um yeah, it's something that they were talking about a few weeks ago when they met in um, Victoria, B.C., and he just sort of, uh, he made a nice little segue about, well, it just goes to show you that we are, we really do need more money from the uh, federal government, so chop-chop Ottawa, basically.
0: Uh, and again, back to the, the point about talking points, I mean, you know, he went back to that thing that, you know, we're paying 78% of this and the government's only, Fed's only 22, which is not totally accurate. Uh, because there are some tax breaks involved in that. That actually increases the amount mm-hmm. of money that's going on, uh, which which means you, you guys, the, 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 the Queen's Park Bureau here, I mean, you're really... You know, the, it's all on you guys right now to fact check a lot of this stuff uh, and make sure that you know what he says is not necessarily uh, what the uh, the actual you know story is in situations like this. Uh, and and it's it's concerning, I guess, and very frustrating for people because I know uh, you've talked to people in the healthcare field as you've been covering the story over the last number of months now, and as I have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the talking points, as you mentioned, it's okay. The feds aren't giving us enough money. Uh, We're doing everything we can for nurses. Uh, He mentioned the $5,000 bonus because he says he loves nurses. He did that again yesterday. I've talked to people, as you have, Mm -hmm. who are nurses, full-time nurses, and they say, we haven't seen a cent. Uh, You know, we heard the promise, too. Uh, Not one red penny has gone their way. And they're saying, you know, talk is cheap. Uh, So there's, there's a great deal of frustration that's going on right now is the government oblivious to this or are they just trying to you know send the uh, nothing to see here sign out just to kind of quell some of this concern
4: i'm sure they're not oblivious to the fact that <laughs> that money hasn't been going out the door but it's definitely a part of um you know trying to deflect as we've been as we've been saying like there's been pretty much since it was passed uh the there's been a um A pay cap on the amount that some civil servants can get, like uh, their raise every year. So it's been capped at like one percent, and this is called Bill One Twenty Four. And there's been push for, well, like years to get Bill One Twenty Four like repealed. There's a big argument from like uh, the healthcare industry and from unions that this is like contributing to the uh, problem of people wanting to leave the um, the healthcare industry, which is at the root is the root cause of all of this problem, uh, all these problems we're seeing with the emergency rooms being shut down because it's all staffing issues. So these un- he's under enormous pressure to uh, repeal uh, Bill 124, especially right now. And he did sort of trot out the $5,000 uh, bonus to uh, point- to sort of make the argument, well, that really kind of is a... Uh, uh, an increase they did like it accounts for a 7.6 percent increase for average for average for nurses but then he also was like oh but it's not actually a raise it's a thank you uh <laughs> which is just another um just another like sort of esoteric point about all this because if it's not a raise then you can't really ask for a raise on top of that and it, yeah it's all sorts of weird things but yeah it's supposed to go out uh, and not everybody has received it, and it's supposed to be done in two payments. The second of which is supposed to come out in September. So, yeah, it's deflection. I they don't want to repeal repeal 124, um, and I guess because it would just be one more thing they've had to back down on. It's like another thing from the earlier in the earlier in their last term that would turned out to be a bad idea. <laughs> and I think they just want to spare themselves the embarrassment on that one by not having to actually repeal it. So it's just hoping that they can keep it in place until it expires next spring, and then hospitals can then just negotiate whatever increase nurses ask for at that time, and then they can sort of save face.
0: But that's, I guess the frustration is I've talked to some of the people in the industry, including, as I mentioned, the nurses. And, and you're right. Time and time again, they do cite that that bill as, as one of the reasons why so many people are leaving uh, those those jobs in the hospitals. But even yesterday, if you if you, you know, as you guys do, of course, with reporting uh, Queens Park today, uh, you know, you try to read between the lines when he says, look, it, it, it expires in the spring. Uh, mm-hmm. You guys can do your negotiating. He didn't say he wasn't going to renew it uh, because that's one of the concerns I know that, that the nurses union has right now is that he may look at this and say, you know what, I've got, we're going to have to continue to do that because of the economic stress the government's in right now. Didn't say he was going to, but he didn't say he wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the here and now, though, as you guys have been reporting, is nurses are leaving today. And, and yeah. you know, he's he's fallen back on this idea, hasn't he, Alan, of saying, yeah, but we're going to bring in more foreign trained nurses. And I know some have already been in there, but that's not solving the issue today or tomorrow. Uh, it's something that's has down the road a little bit, ju- just as well, maybe you can get more money from the hospital down the road. Uh, and they're saying, what about now? And uh, that 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 seems to be uh, where he's trying to do a little bit of an end run around that question.
4: Yeah, it's I mean, we've. <laughs> in the uh, days that they finally started addressing this so this has really been the only the past 3 days that the government has really started to like talk publicly about the about the situation that has been you know building for weeks in hospitals across this province i mean they haven't been able to say anything more about what they're doing beyond all the things they already said they were doing for months now which is like you like you mentioned getting more internationally trained nurses and other medical personnel get their credentials from overseas recognized and get them working more quickly and at, so far the according to the premier they've gotten 760 uh, internationally trained nurses working so far which is like good but I, it doesn't really solve the problem when you have like hospitals and rural communities shutting down their um er's for the weekend or at least overnight uh because they can't find enough people and uh, you have like uh like toronto general hospital having to uh put its uh all of its icus under like a staffing uh uh warning and like it's not gonna it's not gonna cut the mustard really and Yeah, it's uh they so they're talking about getting more, hiring more people, getting more beds, but really it's not none of that is a short term solution, and at the moment uh, all they can say about what they're working on for other on other measures is that they're talking to like the College of uh, Nurses and like the entire Ontario Medical Association, all these other groups who are you know I'm sure are giving them the best advice they possibly can. I'm sure these groups have ideas and that they're, you know, that they are talking to these people but at the moment the government just has nothing else to, to point to other than the things it's well- already said it's been doing.
0: Well, or or the other element, I I don't know if you hit a buck for every time a politician has done this, just deny. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, uh, somebody, one of you guys, your colleagues did mention about this uh, report that came out uh, from the Financial Accountability Office that says that uh, Ontario has the worst record when it comes to per capita spending, especially on health care. And as you heard yesterday, the Premier's answer was, well, that's not accurate. Well, mm-hmm. the numbers say it is uh, and and he doesn't bring anything up to substantiate his point of view. He just says, no, I don't want, you know, that's not right.
4: Yeah. Uh, the, FA, the FAO uh, report mentioned uh, uh, also mentions that uh, there is like millions of dollars that have been left unspent. They like, they in the budget every year, they say how much money they will put aside to spend on any particular thing. Right. And then, uh, According to the uh, the Fi- financial accountability office, they found that uh, in healthcare and a, a few other areas, there was um, like millions of dollars that were just like not spent. And I mean, in any in other year, that might be a good thing. You're trying to like not spend um, taxpayers' money, like. Needlessly, but I mean, you're in a uh, pandemic and a health care staffing crisis, and then there's money that's being left on the table. And it's just, it, it's definitely something that um, it looks bad. And I think they know that it looks bad, but it's, uh, and so yeah, he just sort of said, well, that's not accurate. And I guess the FAO has to do its own math. It, it can only, yeah. uh, it d- isn't like depending on the government to. Do its math for it. it so, and so the government started, well, our uh, our interpretation of the data is different, and we have more up to date data. So um, they're wrong, and you'll see we're right in like six months when we actually <laughs> release the, uh, the data.
0: Yeah, but when you saw that report, though, Alan, did you get a sense of deja vu? Because they, the government was accused of, and actually, you guys found out, actually had done the same thing when it came to COVID oh. funding from the federal government. Oh, yeah. Government. No, it's, it's uh, a trend. Just, they just put it's, it in a bottom drawer trend. someplace. Yeah.
4: Mm hmm. So, is like FA, know, just, the FAO has had report after report about this sort of thing, like they have been very definitely, you know, allocating money in the budget and in, at times increasing that allocation. But at the end of the day, they don't end up spending all that money. And then it goes back into the deficit, which, again, would under maybe a more normal circumstance for a conservative government would be, you know, what conservative voters would want. It might still be what they want, but during a healthcare crisis, it it does look bad.
0: Yeah. Don't touch that pile of money over there. We'll we'll, we'll get Mm -hmm. to do something of that later on. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's why we count on on your stuff uh, from uh, Queen's Park today, of course, to make sure that we understand exactly what's really going on. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Alan Hale, reporter for Queen's Park today, uh, getting uh, the... True stuff about what's happening at uh, Queens Park right now, uh, and I understand it. That's a that's a tough situation with the healthcare problem, and it's not just an Ontario problem. Uh, but that doesn't mean we still can't demand uh, some solutions here from the people that we elect to look after this stuff. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon